Now in Canada, you need to do what's called deemed disposition. So it is a virtual or an imaginary sale of everything that you own. And then you will pay tax on that. But we want to get that amount as low as possible. So obviously there's not going to be any tax on cash. And there's no tax on real estate that's held in your own name. And there's no tax going to be held for retirement accounts. So TFSAs or RRSPs or these types of things. So back to the example of someone who has the real estate portfolio. If the real estate is held in a corporation and a corporate vehicle, then that's going to really complicate things. There's a lot that we'd have to work through on that. That's a, probably a bit outside of the scope of this one. But let's say you own the real estate in your own name. Well, you're not going to be able to say it's a primary residence. You're not going to be able to keep the primary residence in Canada if you plan on going back and living there. But what you can do is you can sign a long-term lease agreement with someone else and rent it out. The most inspiring stories from today's most successful mortgage brokers. Join your host, Scott Peckford, on I Love Mortgage Brokering. Hey, Broker Nation. Scott Peckford here. Today on the show, I have Mikkel Thorup. Mikkel is actually the founder of expatmoney.com. And it's a different type of show than I usually have, but I just found the topic interesting and I love to learn. So hopefully you find this useful. He is specializes in helping people legally pay less tax if they're deciding to leave the country. And he's a Canadian and it's just a very, very interesting conversation. So hopefully you find it as insightful as I did. Also on this podcast, I talked to Kevin Kennedy on how KDK Financial helps mortgage brokers. And uh, before we jump into that, I want to give a shout out to our title sponsor, Finmo. Finmo is a Canadian mortgage application, document collection, submission platform designed specifically for Canadians. It's very easy for borrowers to use. As they're filling out that app, it's automatically knows exactly what documents to ask for. When that file comes in, you can then go search Lender Spotlight for all the rates and guidelines. It's a very powerful tool. Check it out at lendescom slash Finmo. Hey, Mikhail, welcome to the show. Hey, Scott, happy to be here. Hope to uh, provide a bit of insight and some inspiration for your audience today. Yeah, just so you guys are listening, this is a different type of episode. And Mikhail has a specialty in helping people relocate overseas to reduce taxes and a bunch of reasons, not just taxes, but lifestyle, everything that you want to do. But so tell me, how did you get into that? What is your company called? And how did you get into what you're doing today? Sure. So the company's called Expat Money. If you go to expatmoney.com, you'll find out more information. As for how I got into this, I kind of have to go quite far back in time, but I'll try to make it as short and concise as possible. But what happened, Scott, was when I was a child, I was diagnosed with a learning disability. So I grew up in Southwestern Ontario, and one day the teacher pulled me out of class and brought me to a little room, and the principal and vice principal and a resource teacher was there, and they sat me down and they said, Mikkel, something doesn't work quite right in your brain, and what we want to do is send you to a special school, special school for special boys. So that's what they did. Every day for three years, I got on a little white bus, took a little white bus across town, and I went to this quote-unquote special school. Now, only problem, Scott, was actually it was a regular school with a special class. So you can probably imagine what happened. I got in tons of fights, and I got picked on, and I got bullied, and all around a pretty crummy experience. Now, mm -hmm. this is no woe is me, poor Mikkel, victim, victim type of story. Certainly not. I mean, I got hit, and I hit back. And twice as hard if I possibly could, but I would never claim otherwise. But um, after three years, I got to go back to my neighborhood school and I thought, wow, this is going to be so amazing. My friends will be looking forward to seeing me. Everyone's going to wonder what happened. 
but probably you can imagine everyone like gossiping and whispering and oh i remember Mikel. he went to some retard school thanks guys very sensitive you know how kind yeah. children can be yeah, but yeah. uh left a really bad taste in my mouth for education public education so i stopped going i stopped going to school and then i would fail and then they put me into summer school and then i'd fail that long story short i stopped going to school when i was 12 years old and i officially dropped out when i was 15 and i started traveling internationally a couple of years after that and what happened was when i got overseas and i started meeting all these incredible people i really saw that this was like my people these were my peeps and everyone was living their life so completely different and they didn't know that i went to some special school you know or that i had this learning disability which side note is dyslexia which is really not a big deal as we know in today's day and age but somehow 1980s right. that's what i was going to ask you i was like what because you'd seem i mean the stuff you're doing now is pretty complex so it's it's just, really complex is it stuff, just is but... dyslexia with letters or letters and numbers or is it both or is it i don't yeah, really know much i about mean dyslexia. these days i don't really even notice sometimes i still mess things up my spelling is atrocious but it's also how i learn things and how my brain processes information like I'm very much an auditory type of person, hence why I have a podcast of my own for going on seven years now, why I'm so happy to be podcasts. here today on your yeah. podcast. I mean, like, yeah. this is an excellent way to learn and to grow and to consume content. And it speaks very well to my brain. But to go through a textbook line by line and try to learn that way, absolutely not. Rote memorization, mm -hmm. the way that public education is set up for learning just does not speak to me whatsoever. Okay, I have a second question. So 15, left school at 15, and yeah. I'm not gonna let my son listen to this because he's gonna be like, Dad, see, I don't need to be here. <laughs> I, I'm like, no, you gotta finish your school, man. He's very ambitious, wants to make money. So I'm gonna teach him sales and mortgages when he gets older. But you know, any case, how could you afford to travel around? Like, so you know, you did any that pretty young. Any odd so. job that I could possibly do to make money. I started working in picking the weeds out of bean fields when I was like 12 years old. And I did that on the summers and then I worked in grocery stores and I worked in any little thing you could do as a teenager to save up money. And that's what I did. I did my first trip to Europe when I was 17 years old. And it was interesting because my father had told me that travel was the greatest thing he ever did with his life. And when I went on my first trip, I realized he was completely right. He was absolutely right. Travel is like the most amazing thing you can do. My only question for him was, you know, if it's so great, why did he only do one or two trips when he was younger? Like, why didn't he spend more time? So right. for me to fast forward, I've been traveling now for 23 years straight. And I mean, straight. I have circumnavigated the globe over 400 times. I've lived in nine different countries and I have visited, I think we're at 110 countries now. So I've built my entire life on living overseas and traveling and exploring the globe. And with that, I have learned a lot of secrets on how things work, how things fit together, specifically from the immigration and the tax side. And I put it all together. And that's the work that I do at expatmoney.com. So there is no university degree to do the work that I do. Like, no, I mean, it there's, is. There's, yeah, there's not, the the university is not going to teach you this. Hey, we're right. going to show you, like, that's just not going to fit in the curriculum. Okay. So you started as a podcast seven years ago and a blog. And what exactly do you have there? Yeah. So I started consulting, doing general business consulting before that, but started the podcast. This will be our seventh year in the podcast. And actually, I think we were already doing a newsletter for about a year before that. But um, podcast, newsletter, 
daily blog articles, monthly webinars, annual summits, trips every year with private clients. The main business is um, consulting business for private clients. I work with high net worth individuals. We restructuring their businesses offshore, dealing with the tax consequences of their home country. Mostly I work with Americans and Canadians, but some Europeans too. We deal with the tax consequences of the country that we're entering into, all the banking that goes along with that. And then any of the lifestyles, we're really matching up the country to what the person would be after. So if they have kids, if the climate, the type of activities that are there, everything that goes into it. So I deal with all of those esoteric pieces of the puzzle. Like I'm not the one to put your stuff in a shipping container or turn on your electricity bill when you get to a new country. Like I don't do relocation. I do the legal and tax. Right. The planning more of the like, am I going to the right place? What is it going to be like when I get there? Is this the right country? Okay. Very interesting. And so you have the consulting practice for that. So give me some examples of people that would use this type of thing. So I can think of, I think one we were talking about real estate investors. So somebody who's got a lot of real estate. So maybe walk me through without using obviously names and stuff, but give me the more specific, almost like a little mini case study of you think of, Hey, client Bob, and this is what he had set up. And this is what we did. Cause I just find for me as back to audio learning, this is how I learn. It's like understanding. And then I can apply those use cases to other situations. If that makes sense. Sure. So, okay. Hypothetical. And, and just so we're very clear, I'm not giving individual tax advice on today's program whatsoever. I mean, you need to speak to a licensed professional on all of these things, but let's take a, I don't know, a Canadian citizen who wants to get out of Canada has a real estate portfolio. So the way that taxation works in Canada is the tax is based on your residency. So if you become a non-resident, then you're not going to have the same type of tax obligations that you would be if you were living in the country. So first of all, what we would be looking at is we need to get you a residency somewhere else. And a residency is basically a legal right to live and work in another country. So we can take, I don't know, Costa Rica, for example, we could get you a residency in Costa Rica. There's a couple of ways to do this. There's a retirement visa down there. There's an investor visa for $150,000 worth of real estate purchase. There's a, a rentista visa, which is a, basically you make a $60,000 bank deposit and they freeze those funds and release a certain amount of it each month over a couple of year period. So basically they know that you're not going to be going on the dole down there on welfare or anything like that and can support yourself. Now, in Canada, you need to do what's called deemed disposition. So it is a virtual or an imaginary sale of everything that you own. And then you will pay tax on that. But we want to get that amount as low as possible. So obviously, there's not going to be any tax on cash. And there's no tax on real estate that's held in your own name. And there's no tax going to be held for retirement accounts, so TFSAs or RRSPs or these types of things. So back to the example of someone who has the real estate portfolio, if the real estate is held in a corporation and a corporate vehicle, then that's going to really complicate things. There's a lot that we'd have to work through on that. That's a, probably a bit outside of the scope of this one. But let's say you own the real estate in your own name. Well, you're not going to be able to say it's a primary residence. You're not going to be able to keep the primary residence in Canada if you plan on going back and living there. But what you can do is you can sign a long-term lease agreement with someone else and rent it out. Now, any of the income on that, you're going to be paying taxes on. But let's say that you have a side hustle and you're also, I don't know, doing consulting or something like that from Costa Rica. Costa Rica is not going to charge you any tax because it's a territorial tax system. 
they have no taxes on what's called foreign sourced income. And Canada is not going to be taxing you because you're deemed a non-resident of Canada. So now really the only thing that you'd be paying taxes to in Canada is on that rental income inside of Canada. If you have rental income in Costa Rica for a third property, then there's no taxes on that back to Canada. So it's kind of like, how do we skin the cat here? You know, like what- And it's not, yeah, every situation is different. So what if, okay, I'm going to give you some what ifs because I I used to drive my parents nuts with what if and (laughs) eventually my dad was like, okay, enough. So what if you have a person who owns a property in the US, right? Principal residence that they can then rent and I would assume if there's a mortgage on it, any expenses, and you just pay the net profit, it's not a gross profit thing. And then you also own a property in the US and you move you to- You said like, US twice. So is it, we're still sorry, doing- Sorry, the, Canadian yeah. in property in Canada and one in the US. So you've got one property in each country and you happen to relocate to a third country to become a resident there. What would happen to the income on the US property if you're- So you would still be paying taxes to the US based on that property? You know, the difference has become is what is your immigration status in the US? If you're just investing as a foreigner, then there's just going to be, you know, the regular withholding tax on that. But if you're a green card holder or a US citizen, then that really complicates things. And we can talk about the programs for American tax people, tax person, what that looks like. But it would also depend on their immigration status. Does that make sense? Right. Okay. What about if somebody had, let's say you've got a person who has, a bunch of rental properties in their name. So they got a dozen rental properties. They want to live off the income, but not be in Canada anymore. What would happen? And those rental properties, let's do one scenario in their personal name and not. What would that look like? So you would still be liable for taxes in Canada because it's Canadian sourced income. So really what we're trying to do is to break as many ties with Canada as possible. So usually what we're trying to do is sell their properties, certainly their primary residence, or rent it out. And then we're going through, we're canceling bank accounts, credit cards, driver's license, library cards, gym memberships, any tie, either objective or subjective, back to Canada, and we're trying to get them out. So we're trying to show the CRA that this person has no intention of returning to Canada, they're done with Canada, and they're out. And that's usually what we're starting with. So. People who come to me, usually we start at the very beginning and then we look at how we're going to liquidate these things and then what we're going to do with that money. So we want to make sure we're paying as little taxes on the front end for the sale of these things. And then when we're buying, it has to be after they have done their deemed disposition and have been deemed a Canadian non-resident, basically in a foreign country. Does that make sense? It makes sense. Yeah, I get it. So basically, if your income is still being generated in Canada... You're, you're still paying especially taxes. from real estate. You're going to pay Canadian taxes. It's if your income is a virtual income online or some other source of income that's not necessarily tied to, like, it's pretty hard to convince the CRA that, hey, this rental income shouldn't be taxed because I'm not, a, it's like, they're not going to care. They're like, yeah, but the property's in Canada. You're going yep. to pay taxes in Canada. But uh, let's do so, another example. Let's say that you sure. leave Canada and you take your money with you, capital flight, you're gone and you get a job somewhere else. You have any type of freelance online business, work for a corporation outside of Canada, pretty much anything else in the other 192 countries in the world, you're not going to have any taxes back to Canada. Canada is only going to be taxing you on real estate and Canadian sourced income. So that's kind of the only place that you can't be doing it. Then we've got 40, 42 offshore countries in the world. These would be jurisdictions with either zero taxation 
or a territorial tax system where if the money is deemed foreign sourced outside of the country, there's no tax on it. And these jurisdictions have strong asset protection laws and are politically stable. There's like over 40 countries that qualify under these. So that gives you a lot of opportunity of places that you can live and not be required to pay any taxation. So, okay, there's something called the Panama Papers because you're in Panama. So tell me about yeah. that. Explain it to me like I'm 10. So like dumb that right down for me so I understand. I would assume you have some understanding of this topic. So what okay. happened so there? So there was a yeah. law firm. I mean, this is going back a few years. There was a law firm, Moss von Vonseca. They're an old school law firm here, very, very big. And they opened corporate structures. So here it is called a Panama SA, Asociedad Anonimo. It's an anonymous corporation. They're totally legal and normal, and we use them every day. They had these types of corporations and bank accounts for people all over the world. And they had an online portal where they kept all of the client information. And this got hacked and the data was released. Now, it wasn't Panama that was the problem. It wasn't Panama that was the problem. It wasn't even really the law firm that was the problem. It was the clients. Some of the clients in the UK, like the royal family, politicians in Australia, and business owners in different countries, had money held in Panama in anonymous corporations in bank accounts that they were not declaring to their home governments, and that's tax evasion. So it wasn't Panama. Right. It wasn't even this law firm. It was these individual clients who were not telling their governments. This is the opposite of what we do. We're going right. to the government. We're doing the deems disposition. This is what we own. This is what we bought it for. This is what we're selling it for. Here's your taxes. We're paying all appropriate taxes, and then we're leaving. So it really has literally nothing to do with it. Even Mosfan Fonseca, he's not in prison. He's not in jail. I mean, he's still here in Panama City, no problem. So it wasn't him. It was some of these wealthy people who yeah, were they lying just didn't, to their they, own yeah, governments. Okay, I get it. So what are the things that I lose if I become a non-resident or what did you call that again? Sorry, if I deem disposition. Yeah. So yeah, I, well, I have to lose my credit cards, my library card, never use it, whatever. Yeah. It's because CRA, if they see any ties, they're going to say, well, wait a second, they're going to pull that thread. And so in order to prevent CRA from pulling any threads, it's got to be a full commitment. It's not a, because otherwise when you're doing what the people that were doing with the Panama Papers that were playing in both ponds, one foot in each, and that's they where you get really into They weren't really playing like, in both ponds because they were still living in their home country full time. But, but they, they were trying to take advantage of the tax. Wealth. Yeah. Yeah. They're trying and, to take the tax advantage in Panama or in these other countries, right? Yeah, what they were doing was hiding money, you know? But how would they get the money into that corp without it, like... I because a lot different. of it was done a long time ago. Some of these corporations dated back to, like, the 1970s and stuff. So this was a right. huge law firm here. And I had all of their information stored on this intranet, this private portal that got hacked. Actually, I don't even know how far it goes back, but it goes back decades some of the information. So that was why the Panama Papers. Now for okay. Canada, you can still go back to Canada as you know, you're a Canadian citizen, you hold a Canadian passport, you can go back anytime you want, but you don't wanna be living there again. You don't wanna be spending months on end or anything like that. You go back, you see your family for Christmas, you see your friends or you go to a wedding or a birthday party or something like that, and then you leave again. It's about living in another country, like legitimately mm -hmm. building a life in a new country. Right. I see. I heard a story about Loblaws had a CRA tax bill of 475 million that they had money in Barbados. 
and CRA lost. So we took them to court and CRA actually, it's very interesting on that. So now what if somebody has a brick and mortar business? Like I know it's more complex, but if somebody had a brick and mortar business that let's say they don't really run it, it's a business that you have, you are primarily a, you know, investor consultant. Is that a possible setup? Is that something somebody could do? So what we would want to show on something like that is that you are not controlling the corporation. So it's one thing if you're an owner, but I mean, the corporation is still going to pay corporate taxes, right? But we just want to show that you're not controlling it. So you have a backseat type of a position. We don't want you flying into Canada, doing meetings, signing documents, everything like that. Everything needs to be done while you're remote. You know, what you are going to be able to do is legally reduce your personal income tax. Your corporate income tax is still going to be the same because it's a Canadian corp. The only difference Correct. is personal income tax. Okay. Correct. Okay. What about having, I just went on your website, second residency and passport. So what are the benefits of another passport for somebody? I'm curious. Sure. Well, okay. First of all, let's make sure we got the lexicon correct. So a second residency, what we're looking at are permanent residences. That's the type of work that I do. Now there are student visas. There are working holiday visas. There's these types of things. I have nothing to do with that kind of stuff. I'm looking at a permanent residence. That's the legal right to live in and work in the country forever. Now there's going to be stipulations that come along with that. So, you know, a minimum amount of time on the ground. Here in Panama, it's one day every two years. As long as you enter into the country one day every two years, you can be a legal resident of the country. Now, we need wow. to get you your residency. So there's investment, there's immigration work, legal work. You know, I have lawyers that I work with. We go through everything. We do all the paperwork. We have to fly you down. There's a lot that goes into it. But once you have it, it's yours. Now, mm -hmm. a passport is just a travel document. It's the same as a driver's license. I mean, it's just a, this one allows you to enter into another country. And a passport is really the negotiation between two countries. So the relationship of your home country with another country. So what we're usually looking at is called visa-free travel. How many countries can you enter into with this passport? Now, as I said, the passport is just the travel document, right? What we want is the citizenship. Citizenship is that you can actually say, I am Canadian, I am Panamanian, I am Brazilian. So you what is your citizenship write, right now? I have Canadian citizenship. I'm Canadian. But do you have Panamanian? You... I have others, which we won't discuss today, but- Okay, I yeah. Have, <laughs> Come yeah. on. Show, okay, there's pictures. <laughs> we're going to put pictures of all his passports on the podcast. I'm kidding. We're not going to do that. All right. So why would somebody, why would I, and I'm asking dumb questions, like I said. No, no, you're I'm, asking I'm amazing questions. This is awesome. So tell me, like, what would be the benefit of me having a second passport? All right. I don't know how many examples I can give, but let's go for three. I'll give you three solid examples. Sure. Okay, number one, say that you're a business business owner, businessman, you travel a lot for work, okay? Canadian passport is very strong. We can travel to a lot of countries, but there are some countries that we cannot travel to. So what you need to do is you need to get a visa. Often for that, you need to send away your passport. It might be gone for two weeks at a time. Now you have no travel document to leave the country. If you're a business owner, that could be a, a non-starter, a no-go. Now, if you have two citizenships, two different passports, you can travel on one, the other one can be off getting the visa. Same type of thing. Let's say that you lose your passport. Something happens to it. Your wife puts it in the washing machine in your pant pocket. I actually can't find Which my youngest happens. daughter's passport right now. There I, you I, go. My, my wife thinks I lost it. <laughs> She's probably right. I don't know where it is, but so I should so, get her a Panamanian passport. <laughs> there you go. So now you have a backup travel document. Okay. Right. Let's call that one and 1.5. Okay. Number right. two, 
there are 193 countries in the world. You can stack passports so you can go to every single country in the world without having to apply for a visa. So say Canadian citizens cannot go to Russia, but uh, Brazilians can. My son is a Brazilian. We did birth tourism. So my wife and I flew down to Brazil when she was six months pregnant. We gave birth in Brazil. My son is automatically a Brazilian citizen. He got the passport. Now he can go to Russia anytime he wants. I mean, he's still a little bit too young, but you know, yeah, when he the, grows the, up, he has I, that. I, you know, what, no, I, I don't know if you want to go to Russia at the moment. You know, but could probably be, don't want to go to Ukraine at the moment. But I think yeah. Russia should be fine. Right. Okay. So it's an example. You can get access to some countries that you Correct. may not be able to get into. Yep. What was number three? So there was one, two, was um, two. So let's see. Number three is political insurance. If you don't like what's happening in your home country, if you don't agree with what's going on there and you need to leave, then you have the ability to do that. You're always going to have another home, another place that you can land in right. and, and spend time in. You can use that travel document. Let's use the US. The US has an okay, strong passport. It's pretty good. It's not the best in the world, but it's pretty decent. Now, when you travel on a US passport, there can be some political issues. The US is very aggressive to a lot of countries and to other populations. So you can be seen in really not a nice limelight at all as an American. So, you know, if you're have, I don't know, a Belgium passport or something like that, maybe you will be viewed a little bit differently. Investments can open up to people who have different citizenships. Purchasing real estate can be done in some countries if you are a citizen of that country. Well, they got the new foreign buyer stuff ban right now, which mm -hmm. interesting. Okay, so you convinced me, you know, and plus it's like the new thing that people collect cars, collect passports. And so that makes sense why people would want more than one passport. So you went down this path of like understanding this whole thing. And I can imagine the complexity must just be like, it's like a Rubik's cube of complexity when you add in, this is where I'm from. Here's what I want to do. Here's my current assets, you know, my income sources, there's not two that are exactly the same. What's something that you've learned from doing all this that people would be surprised by, or that you'd be like, oh, I didn't know that. Like, what's something that you think would be? Well, I think that a lot of people seem to believe that, you know, there's really only North America, Australia, New Zealand, and Western Europe, and maybe Japan, which are free countries. And the rest of the world is just a bunch of savages and super poor, and they have don't know their ass from their elbow. This is ridiculous. I mean, the world, in, by and large, is a very free place. Like I said, I've traveled to 110 countries, so I've, I have a very good amount of experience exploring other places. And I can tell you that inherently people are the same. They want the same things out of life. They're trying to do right by their family and take care of their family. It's really so much the same out there. I mean, there's cultural differences, language differences, food, and things like this but human beings really are the same. And as an expat, the ability to live in another country and build a life there is just so rewarding. Like it's so enriching and helps you grow as a human being because you're putting yourself in challenging situations. And every time you put yourself in a hard situation and you overcome these challenges, you grow. So like, I'm a very confident person. I'm extremely confident, but that comes because I've done a lot of hard shit in my life. And you know, right. I haven't been to 110 countries and sat on the beach in the resort in an all-inclusive. I mean, I've drove across Africa. I've you know been in Zimbabwe and Zambia. I've been to North Korea and Iran. I was in El Salvador 20 years ago. I mean, I've been to a lot of dangerous places, a lot of places with very little infrastructure. But 
got to see what the country was like and meet the people and form deep and meaningful relationships with them, which gave me a very broad view well, of the world. I can imagine. Yeah, I can imagine. You'd have a totally different perspective of just how things work. And yeah, I'm, I, so like I said to you before, I have a couple of friends that are working, you know, they run their mortgage businesses remotely, but they're still earning income and paying tax in Canada. But I guess who knows? They, they answer that question. I don't know if it makes sense for them, if they could maintain a mortgage license in Canada and have a citizenship in another country. Like, is that even possible? There's no problem with having multiple citizenships. So Canada allows dual nationality. So does America. So does most of Western Europe. The exception would be Germany. But most countries in, in Western society allow two citizenships. Germany doesn't allow you to have more than one citizenship? You have to have special permission and you have to justify it every year, which is a real pain in the ass. So even people, you know, I have colleagues of mine who are German, who have been to every country in the world and have traveled nonstop for 20 years, and they only have their one citizenship. It's just too much. Canadians, no problem. Easy peasy. Americans, no problem. Easy peasy. So what about, you said not every country has as good of a passport. So which are the countries that you'd say have the best passport? Like for hey, this is an interesting topic because if you just look at the numbers, you would pick something like the United Arab Emirates or Japan or Singapore. These would probably be some of, you know, top three countries that have the strongest passport. However, none of those three countries allow you to have dual nationality. The only way that you would be able to do it is if your parents were from two different countries. So let's say your mom's from Japan and your dad's from, I don't know, Ireland or something like that. But at 18, 18 and a half, you'd have to make a choice on which one you're going to choose. So although these countries allow the most amount of visa-free travel, like I think it's 189 countries or 191 countries visa-free travel, like pretty much everywhere on planet Earth, you can only have that one passport. I would much rather see something like Canada and Ireland and Brazil or something like that. And although they don't have quite as strong passports on their own, the overlap of them allows for a lot more flexibility. So what is so the one country that you can't go into from Singapore? Ooh, from Singapore, I can't tell you off the top of my head. It's probably North Korea or something. Like okay. That. So there'd be like there might be one place where they wouldn't let you go. It'd be like oh, yeah. that passport's not interesting. Yeah. Although it okay, would probably I, be it, North yeah. Korea or Iran or something like that. But yeah. One of those two countries. All right. Yeah. And there are uh, no countries in the world that allow visa free travel to every single country. There's a couple that are close, but not every single one. Because it's the right. diplomatic relationships between the two countries. It's not an arbitrary mm -hmm. number. You know, it's the negotiation that they've done. So if there's sanctions on a country, the sanctions usually come from the US and they lead the pack. So if the US says don't go there and you're an ally of the US, most times they have to follow that. Right. It's like ostracize that one kid in class. It's like, hey, don't talk to that kid at lunchtime. And mm -hmm. all the rest of the kids follow him because he's the he's the big kid. Okay. So anything I should have asked you about this that I didn't or no, it's pretty comprehensive, Scott, pretty comprehensive. It's pretty fascinating to me. And I think that, you know, so it's a different show than I normally do, but I love learning new stuff. And who knows if maybe some of our mortgage broker, this could be something that their clients may need access to. You could be a great resource for not maybe the broker themselves, unless they're at the end of their career, but more of their clients that they're working with. And then now they have a resource to be able to plug into you and say, hey, I got some clients that want to do this. Can you help them? And that would be something that could be good. So. Yeah, well, and I think um, we should probably highlight some of the reasons why someone might want to do this, because it's not just about sure. taxes. I mean, there's a lot of other 
benefits, either you know, tangible and intangible types of things. So number one, I guess, would be the standard of living. You, know, you can live overseas. Cost of living can be a quarter, maybe a half of what you were paying back home. Down here in Latin America, most of the food is naturally organic. So they don't have the big chemical companies, Monsanto and these guys spraying the fields every day, ground up and all of this stuff, insecticides, pesticides, fungicides, herbicides, et cetera, et cetera. So the food is naturally organic, fresh seafood every single day, sunshine pretty much every single day, warm weather, amazing beaches, mountains, tons of activities, very outdoorsy type of areas. Also in Latin America, what I really like is that it's very family orientated. We don't have a lot of this, I don't know how a polite way to say it, a lot of this woke stuff down here at all. It's very, very family orientated, very traditional. It's almost like going back in time, 10, 20 mm-hmm. years. It's a little bit machismo. And you know, for a lot of my clients, they like this type of thing. They what just do you mean want machismo? Enough. I don't know what that is. What does that mean? It's I've like heard it before, but a man is a man is masculine and a woman is a woman and it's not men are better than women or women are better than men. It's not like that at all, but there are roles and there are roles in the family. And that's the way it is. There's no tampons in the men's bathroom in the public schools here. Like we're getting in California and stuff. So yeah. Okay. It comes from macho. I was just, I was like, now that makes, I've heard it before, but I was like, uh, I didn't know the reference. All right. That makes sense. Yeah, It's just a lot more conservative, a lot more traditional down in Latin America. So a lot of my people, that's what they want. They just want a nice, normal life. They want to be left alone. They don't want all this divisiveness from back home. Mm-hmm. And they just want a safe place to live and spend time with their families and you know, save a bit of money, <laughs> not right. pay 50% or 53% in taxation. You know, Once you start adding up all of the taxes in Canada and the United States or in Europe, I mean, it's a ridiculous amount. It is really insane how much taxation has gotten out of control back home. So when you can not pay all of that legally and the cost of living is half, now you can live like a king, even if your salary is just an average salary. Like you don't have to be a multimillionaire here, but if you are well-to-do, I mean, the sky's the limit. Like in Panama, where I live, I'm close to Tucumán airport. It's an international airport. We can fly you know, this month we've been in Jamaica for a week and Dominican Republic for a week. Jamaica was, I think, 70 minute flight, just over an hour. And Dominican Republic was two hours. You know, you can go to Peru in three hours. I took my wife last year to go hike Machu Picchu. It was three hours away. We went to Aruba. How far, for, is, Florida, how far is Florida from there? About four hours, something like that. Yeah, three and a half, mm-hmm. four hours. So pretty close to the States. It's really centrally located. I grew up in Southwestern Ontario, so I'd have to go from London, Ontario to Pearson Airport in Toronto, two and a half, three hour drive, then three hours in advance. And then you're going, I mean, six, eight, 10 hours to go anywhere that I would want to go. And sometimes not even direct flights. Like you really have to think those things through. Here, we go away every single month. We're going to a new place, a new country and bring the kids with us. We bring our nannies with us. You can have domestic help here in Latin America. We have two full-time nannies who work for us and a cleaning lady. So, and my wife is a stay-at-home mother and my mother lives with us as well. So we've got tons of help at the house for the kids and you can just buy back a lot of time with those types of things. Right, right. Do you want to adopt me? No, just kidding. (laughs) It sounds pretty great. I'm I'm teasing. Okay, so where can people find you online? 
You guys go to expatmoney.com. That's the main website. Like I said, we've got a weekly podcast, daily blogs, daily newsletter, monthly webinars, annual summits, trips, everything can be found at expatmoney.com. You can check out our podcast if you search for Expat Money Show on any podcasting app. We're at 230 some odd episodes over the last six, seven years. So lots of stuff to go back through on that. Had lots of big names on the program over the years. And yeah, it's uh, cool. it's good. I enjoy the work and happy to help any of your people who reach out. Right, yeah. And any of you guys listening, again, if you've got clients that are looking at this stuff, definitely get some help from somebody like you to stick handle this whole situation because you've done a ton of it. So awesome, man. Great to meet you. And uh, this was a fun episode. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. All right. Hopefully you got some ideas or just got some insights on how that whole world works. I'm not in any way am I suggesting do something illegal. But again, I always like to ask questions and learn about things that I don't understand. And then who knows if I'll do something with it someday, but certainly not at the moment, given the way my businesses are all set up in Canada. So in this next segment, I talked to Kevin from KDK Financial about how they help mortgage brokers. Hey, Kevin, welcome to Ask the Experts. Thanks for having me back, Scott. Hey man, so let's chat about KDK Financial and some of the auto stuff loans that you guys have been doing to help out brokers. So maybe give me some examples of you know what you guys have been working on recently to help brokers out. Yeah. Maybe so before we do that, just give them a quick like 60 second what you guys do and then we'll jump into some of these examples. Okay. Yeah. So I'll just do that right now. So KDK was a company that we developed in 2020 and we built it specifically for mortgage brokers. This company is literally designed just for you. And we just created it of a need. We saw that there was a situation that comes up quite often that you run into where the car loan is too high and you need to reduce it to get your file done. I worked at a dealership for 20 years as a finance director, and I just saw mortgage brokers sending clients all the time to get this done. And it was just disorganized. So we decided to come up with this company that puts the mortgage broker in control and turns a painful experience into a quick, easy, fun one. Right. Okay. So, and I think, as I've said many times before, I think this is a great product for the current market situation. Tell me about, so give me some examples that you recently of brokers that you've helped out of the problem they came in with the broker and then how you guys solved it, what it looked like when you guys were done. For sure. So I'll give you a couple examples. So obviously what happens is you run into a file and debt servicing's out because of car payments. It happens so, so often. So one nice case that we just ran into a couple of weeks ago was a young gentleman out of Saskatchewan where he had two vehicle payments. So one had a 30K balance, one had a 15K balance, but the problem was each one had about a $700 a month payment attached to it. So he was looking at $1,400 worth of car payments on two auto loans, where really there was only a 45K balance between the two. So what we were able to do is we took the $15,000 auto loan, we attached it to the $30,000 auto loan, did a $45,000 auto loan on one vehicle, re-amortized it, and cut his payments down from fourteen hundred down to six hundred dollars a month, and that right. was amazing. So it made it. So did he only have? So then the one would have been free and clear, right? The one vehicle would have had no charge against it. Yeah, the new one would have a lien of forty five, and the other one was free and clear after that. So in this case, what they were doing is lowering their monthly obligations. So they basically, so there's a refinance, but that was like a refinance and a bundle into one. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay. What other kind of examples have you seen recently that your brokers have been using you guys to solve problems? Yeah. So that was a really special one, but most of them is just a generic refinance. So we just take their loan and we re-amortize it to get a significant payment drop, right? But it really comes down to how they buy it. So there's a lot of good people with good intentions. So I just ran into a gentleman the other day who did a very short-term loan out of the gate because he could afford it. He did a 60-month yeah. loan on a brand new Ford F-150, but the payments were like $12.50 a month 
So very, very high. And because he was self-employed, he was running into debt servicing issues with getting his mortgage. So all we did on that one is we, I think he only had like two years left or something like that. And what we did is we moved it up to a seven-year amortization and we got that payment down from, I think it was closer to $1,300 actually. And we got it down to around 500 a month just by reordering. So he was totally fine with it because at the end of the day, once the mortgage got closed, he could then shorten it right back to where it was before we started. So it's right. That's what I was going to say. Like, this is not a permanent thing. If just because it doesn't work debt surfacing doesn't mean that the person, they may be like, Hey, I actually want to pay it off quicker. And they could go back to, you can shorten the amortization. So if somebody does that, so they go to seven years and do they shorten it by just like, how do they increase the payment? So what happens there? So let's, they get the loan and then how do they increase the payment? Yeah. So super easy. And they can leave it as is, or they can do something in the middle. They don't even necessarily have to bring it back to where it was, but all they do is once the mortgage is closed, they call the lender. It's a five minute phone call. It's direct access. It's not like you're on hold with Telus forever. It's a very quick process. Yeah. And you just say, Hey, you know what? I want to raise my payments up from $500 a month to 1200 or 1300 or whatever, or whatever, five, 600, 700, yeah, yeah, whatever. And then the bank makes that adjustment and then the term gets truncated accordingly. So that's one way to do it. Or they can just simply make lump sum payments. Every extra payment that you make above the minimum goes straight to principal. So there's all sorts of different ways you can do it. We always recommend to the client that they kind of leave the payment low for a couple months until they get it. Mm-hmm. What home yeah, especially anybody money. buying a property, man. You never like mortgage brokers know this, but like there's always more costs and you want to get settled into that first before you go and check. Yeah, yeah. So new buyers, you know, like property taxes, insurance, stuff that they don't really think about, right? So I always recommend you leave it as is for a couple months. And then once you get a good grasp on your bills, then adjust it, do whatever you want, shorten it back to where it was or something in the middle, whatever is comfortable for you. Right. And then what other kind of use cases have you seen? So you talk about doing their case, you lowered your payment. There's kind of a cash out ish with combining the two cars into payments into one, two loans into one. Have there any other cash out type loans that you guys have worked on recently? And give me the use case there. So putting this in the broker's mind. So when they see this problem in their business, like I know how to solve this. So that's why I like these examples. Yeah. So with refinancing, we could do a reamortization and add in cash back to close out a credit card or a Fairstone or something like that. But the cash back you can use for anything. Like we've had files where the client was just short on cash down to get the property and just tack on 10K to their car and they're done. The nice thing is that with the reamortization and the cash back, you can liquidate quite a bit out of the vehicle. And most times your payments don't go up unless you just got right. the very recently. So it really comes down to getting to the finish line for the client on the best possible way for them. So we always start with a refinance. Hopefully that's enough. Most of the time it is because we save two to $300 on average. If that doesn't work, we add in some cash back to close out some other credit and go from there. But it's all over the place. Like we've got clients with free and clear assets too, that just want to borrow against it and use the money for an investment. So right. the best what's the largest cash out you've seen? Actually, it's funny because the last podcast we were talking about a Ferrari deal that fell apart. I yeah. got another one the week after and uh, we ended up doing $950,000 for the client. So we did uh, his Ferrari, which was free and clear. We did his Bronco, which was free and clear, his Indian motorcycle and his Ford F-350. And the combined total was nine hundred and fifty grand. And he used that money to do a development property that I was going to do. And then in probably about eight or nine months, he'll pay it off and probably call me and do it again on the next one. So right. uh, it's so easy to do. And uh, yeah, that's by far my biggest million. $950,000 in auto loans. That's crazy, but it makes sense. And they're totally open. So it's a very flexible way for people to like, you can pay them off and stuff, right? Like there's a. Yeah. yeah with him, yeah. it was easy qualification. Like we got this done in 48 hours, right? Like, so that, did he need to like income qualify for all that? Or were they just based on the vehicle and credit? Well, that's the beautiful thing about our lenders is that everything is system adjudicated. So there was no proof. Right. Of 
any of the files. So it's just, he was very successful, right? And his credit was- Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, he's got some nice vehicles. What's the value, do you think, of those? Because you guys can also loan more than 100% of the value of vehicles in a lot of cases. So what do you think the value of those vehicles was? Probably close to 700, maybe 750. He didn't need more than what we got him. We probably could have got him more, but it just wasn't a requirement for him. But for him to go to the branch and try to get personal loans and stuff like that, like it would have been a process and he had a very short timeline to get this property done. So for him to get it done in 48 hours, have the money in his account was a blessing. Right. Like I guarantee you there's brokers listening to this. If somebody's on their treadmill, they just slipped off their treadmill and hit the floor. They're going to be like, oh, what the heck was that? This is what they're going to be thinking in their head, right? Yeah. Or they're running down the road with their headphones on and they're going to like, are you effing kidding me right now? Man, I'm telling you, you give this kind of thing to clever mortgage brokers and their brains are just going to be lit up with ideas. And so that's amazing, man. So basically lower payments is one you've seen a lot of those cash out. You know, the guy with the two payments in the one, essentially, and he did both kind of cash out and a lower payment and then just lowering the payment by re-amortizing. Man, that's awesome. So where can people find you guys online if they're looking to reach out to you? How's the best way to reach out? So the best with brokers is pretty much just a quote to begin with, right? So they just find out the year, make a model, roughly what's left owing and what their current payment is, or they just have a question about the amount of cash back they can liquidate of an asset, whatever it may be. The best thing to do is email me directly at kevin at kdkfinancial.com just with your inquiry i normally get back to you fairly quickly within five ten minutes i'll have a response to you that you can work with and we'll troubleshoot to find a solution right and you guys pay brokers anything under thirty thousand is 250 over is 500 yep. and this is a tool you guys are going to be using a ton so awesome and thanks for coming to chat with me and thanks for the crazy story of nine hundred and fifty thousand dollar auto loans nuts yep. <laughs> hey man thanks for chatting all right take care scott All right. Thanks again for listening to this episode. Hopefully you got some ideas and inspiration from Kevin as well as Mikkel. And go check out his website. That's expatmoney.com and check out KDK Financial. They're both fantastic. And uh, I will see you on the next episode. This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.